This podcast is shareable. I'm going to go ahead on a limb and say this either is or will become your favorite podcast. This is shareable. The show that's so good, you got to tell someone about it. Every episode, we explore the impact of people and technology on our lives and careers, and we send you away with something shareable. Now, without further ado, let's get to it. Hey there, shareable listeners. Welcome back. Uh, Today's guest is somebody who I am thrilled to have on the show, Jeffrey Shaw. He's the host of the business podcast, Creative Warriors. He's also a TEDx speaker. Uh, He's a business coach and a keynote speaker at primarily creative and business conferences. And he's also the author of Lingo, a book that I just finished, uh, which is a book on how to discover your ideal customer's secret language and make your business irresistible. That's the tagline. Uh, so for more than three decades, Jeffrey Shaw has been one of the most sought-after portrait photographers in the United States, and his portraits have appeared on The Oprah Show and in People Magazine, O Magazine, and a bunch of others. Um, he's used his honed intuition developed as a photographer to see what others can't see as a branding consultant, and he uses that to teach businesses and entrepreneurs how to discover and speak the lingo of their ideal customers. So with an understanding of the values and priorities, lifestyle, and emotional triggers of that ideal customer, he teaches business how to speak that secret language to attract the most profitable customers, charge a premium price, and increase brand loyalty. Uh, He is also, I have seen him um, speak before. He is absolutely tremendous. Uh, He's a good friend of mine. I, I just... Uh, I respect the hell out of Jeffrey, and I'm really glad to have him on the show today. And uh, I definitely recommend you go listen to Creative Warriors. It's a phenomenal podcast. Uh, He really does great work with it. So without further ado, this is Jeffrey Shaw. Oh, my God. Welcome back to Shareable 2019, and we are kicking off the year right. I am beyond stoked right now for the guest that I have with me, Jeffrey Shaw. You're among one of my favorite people, and I'm super glad to start 2019 with you. How are you? I'm great, Jeff. And likewise, you're one of my favorite people, and I'm thrilled to be here with you as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, there's so many things for us to talk about. Um, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, you know, I've introduced who you are prior to this episode coming on. Uh, so people have a little bit of an idea who you are, but I just want to kind of quickly at a high level, talk about some of the things that I, I would like to talk to you about today. And, uh, and I'm sure we'll come up with more things along the way. But uh, I, did I tell you that I read your book while I was on my honeymoon? Did I tell you that that's when I read no, you did not. I'm really sorry to hear that. You should have no, been no, no. It was things. Wonderful. So uh, <laughs> you had sent me the book a little while ago and I just, I had like a backlog of reading and then I got caught up in things, but it was like, it was like at the top of my reading list. And it was really cool because when uh, we arrived in Vietnam on our honeymoon, one part of our tour was we went to Ha Long Bay and we had no internet, which was great. Um, but I, you know, I wanted to be able to have like the clear headspace to read. And I just blew through your book on the deck of this cruise ship in Halong Bay. Uh, it, it did not take me long at all. Cause I was just, I was just feeding on it. And I really want to talk to you about your book and, and the whole thing behind that. I'm also super curious about how you built a photography business. Um, I, you met, um, one of my best friends who does a lot of video and photo work for me, Tim at, um, at the, um, Phil Jones event. Yes. And, um, and I, I don't know what you guys talked about, but I'm so super interested in how you went about building that because you talk about it in the book. And then I know that 
you've been getting really, really heavy into public speaking, even more so like it seems like that part of your life is accelerating. And then there's your podcast, there's just so many things for us to cover that uh, I don't know how we'll fit it all in. But I can assure our my listeners that this is going to be a freaking fantastic episode. So I want to dive into a couple things. But first, I want to get to know you a little bit in ways that I don't already know you. Um, I don't know if I've ever asked you this question, but it's my quickest way of reading people. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Could have or do have. I love you. Because <laughs> I think uh, I do have a superpower. Any, any additional superpower? <laughs> All right, an additional superpower. Okay, now that isn't that more interesting. Um, an additional superpower. I would say I would like to have the additional superpower of, of being magnetic. You know, there are just certain people that walk in a room and, and are, that's, I don't consider myself having that superpower. An interesting side, kind of sidebar on that, I did an extensive leadership program a few years ago, which involved personality typing, you know, how the world's, what personality people saw in you. And, and there were seven different types and I was called the charm type, which really threw me because I don't see myself as all, at all charming or how I experience charm from other people. Because I've never thought of myself as that guy, like the charming type that walked into the room and people swooned. And, you know, but what I learned is that that isn't necessarily charming. It, charm is also just a, is a warmth to charm, which I do think I have. And I, I will own that. But the superpower I would love to have would be to have a little bit more instant magnetism. Um, I tend to sit back. People often, I, I'm kind of innately shy in a lot of ways. So I kind of sit back and people can interpret that as snobbery. They can interpret it in a lot of different ways, none of which is really true. But I do tend to sit back. I wish I, I, wish I was a little more instantly magnetic. That's a fascinating thing for you to, to, to say, just because you know we, we've spent enough time at this point that I see you as a truly magnetic person and you, you have an, an immense amount of warmth to you, which uh, I'm sure even our listeners can get in the, in the very short time that we've been talking. So it's fascinating because you once said to me not very long ago at all that we see so much in others that we can't see in ourselves. So we're, we're more quick to acknowledge what we see in others than we are to acknowledge what we see in ourselves. So it's fascinating that you chose magnetism. It's almost like you were uh, to say something like, I wish I could be a really good photographer. because <laughs> it, it, it just doesn't match up for me in my experience of you. But that's... And- and I agree. People say that I've heard other people say something similar, but yeah, how we see ourselves and how others see, uh, you know, I did, but I could give you proof of my view, right? I mean, that's how, that's how we look at it. It's like, no, no, I have proof that I'm not magnetic. Let me, let me show you why I'm not good at this thing or why I, I'm right, exactly. Um, so I want to, I want to know a little bit more about, um, the people influences in your life. Um, you and I've had a, a number of conversations in the past. And from your book, you talk a lot about the impact of your father in your life. Um, and I wanted to ask you about who you would consider to be, I guess, your, either your favorite person of all time, uh, dead alive, person you know, person you don't know. But who helped shape Jeffrey Shaw? Who, who helped make you who you are? You know, uh, you mentioned my father. And my father definitely shaped who I am most significantly, but not in the way most people would think. I didn't have a good relationship with my father. Um, I spent my younger years, teen years and youth trying to, to, trying to get his attention, trying to uh, be somebody important to him. 
And, um, you know, without going into all the details, he died on the day of my wedding at 20 years. I was got married at 20. He died the day of my wedding. And ultimately he shaped my life the most significantly because he set me free. You know, I just felt really overpowered by my father. I didn't get along with him. Um, didn't feel, I honestly didn't think he liked me to be perfectly honest with you. It just, cause I was very different than my older brothers. I had two older brothers. I was very different than them. Um, so without a doubt, he shaped me the most. And it's interesting how something, a negative, a negative can kind of shape a positive, right? I mean, if he hadn't, I mean, having him, your father die the day of your wedding, there's nothing positive about that. Uh, and yet the positive outcome of that was it released me from feeling like I needed to stay in my small hometown to try to be a big fish in a little pond because that might get his approval. And it released me feeling like I needed to do that. And now I entered into a much bigger world uh, and, and, and actually find myself much happier being the little fish in a big pond. If I feel like I'm getting too big for the pond, I move, right? Because that's how we stretch. Um, I also honestly never would have come out at 44 years old if my father was living. I, I don't, I think there was so much denial in my psyche because of my relationship with my father. I don't know that I, I ever would have had the bravery to come out because it, I, I don't think the situation would have been good. So without a doubt, he shaped me who I am. And I'll, but you know, I'll add to that in a more positive way. There have been many people. I have a really good friend named Roger uh, in a positive way that has been a really shaped me. We went to photography school together. We had kind of always had a healthy competition. He's the most unconditionally loving man um, I've met. Uh, just, just a really dear friend. So he shaped me in both ways that we pushed one another, but then also having that type of friendship and relationship in your life that you feel the true essence of unconditional love. You, you use love a lot in uh, in your writing, in your speaking, in conversation, uh, just as kind of a central theme for you, would you say that that is kind of your driving force? Hmm. Or, or are you, because like some people, they're like, it's competition or it's winning or it's, you know, fear. You know, for me, I know like I, I do really well in the survival mindset. And, and if the state, I'm like a wartime president, not a peacetime president. So, you know, everybody's kind of got their driving force. It's interesting because the two examples of people you just gave are there's one that you said is unconditional love and the other you didn't even think liked you. And they're the two people you gravitated towards. One, right. kind of a negative influence to a certain extent that helped shape you. And then another, a very positive influence that helped shape you. So what would you say is the driving force? And do you think that if it's, if it's love, do you think it's those two people that helped to kind of shape that? You know, I do wish we talked about love a little bit more in business. You know, and a book that was very influential to me as a parent of young children and wound up being very influential. It actually confirmed. So the book is um, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. I read it as a, as a parent, right? Because I, my, my first child was an easy fit. My first child, my son, uh, he was, I spoke his, lang his love language innately, which was words of affirmation, because I didn't get that as a child, as a parent that felt like the most natural thing for me to do. Just tell your children they're wonderful and praise them. And it was, it happened to be, I hit it lucky that that was his love language. And then my second child comes along and none of no words of affirmation had any impact on her. And I couldn't figure out why. And that, for that reason, I picked up the book. So I'm reading this book about five love languages, which helps you identify that people feel love in usually one of five primary ways. 
as I'm reading this, I was learning a lot as a parent. And actually, as I unpacked it, in, at the time I was married, three kids and a wife, and all five of us, we represented the five love languages, which was pretty cool. Uh, but as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, I'm sorry? Also a little chaotic, I would assume. Yeah, although I tell you, it, it changed my position as a parent. Like it totally changed my world because I realized I had three kids with three different love languages and I could, I just needed to, to, to provide to them what they needed to hear. And it, it just totally changed my world as far as a parent. But as I was reading this, I was thinking, isn't it interesting? This is exactly how I built my business, my photography business. You know, I, I guess I built my, I refer to it as lingo, the title of my book. But the fact of the matter is I was speaking the right love language to the right group of people that built a successful business. So when I read the five love languages, I, I learned as a parent, but it confirmed what I had already been doing in business. And I do wish we had, that's why I wrote the book. That's why I'm an advocate for uh, the type of work I do and the whole message behind lingo, because I do wish, and I think it will, not only do I wish, Jeff, I actually think it'll be necessary in the future for businesses to speak the love language, the lingo of their ideal customers. I don't know that you'll stand out otherwise. I, I completely agree with you. And um, and just to the listeners, I really strongly recommend reading Jeff's book, Lingo, uh, and not just to, to shill it for any particular reason other than I think it's a great book. You cover so many different areas of life and business in it. And it's not just applicable to business, although it's I think it's primarily useful as kind of a handbook for how do you grow your business and speak your audience's language. But you really do kind of talk about the experience of being you know, a human being and our preferences and the way that we buy things and the way that we go about our lives. And, and if you can find your partner's uh, lingo, you're going to have a much easier time. And, and I think the emphasis you put on choosing the right words, even just the order of the words, you, you paid so much attention in that book to those little tiny micro changes that can make such a huge impact. I, I really appreciate that about it. Mm -hmm. I want to go a little bit deeper on the book. Um, so as kind of because there are other things I want to talk to you about, you know, more about people and more about technology and all sorts of different things. But in looking at the book, let, let's start here. Can you give the the kind of the book summary? Like what is what is lingo about and kind of what do you cover in it that would make it valuable for someone to read? Sure. So on a high level, to speak someone's lingo is to speak to their their values, their life values, their behavior, their lifestyle. And ironically, to speak someone's lingo, sort of like we were just saying with love language, ironically, to speak someone's lingo is actually to speak to their most meaningful, unspoken emotions, right? So when you're really deeply speaking someone's emotion, it's as if you know what they need that they don't know to ask for. It's as if you are making people feel completely seen heard and understood. And that's why it's so valuable for uh, businesses to do this as well, because we all, you know, hey, you're, you're like the happiest married person I've ever met in my life. Oh, thanks. You know what it feels like, like when, when, when you, when you do something for her that, that she didn't even know to ask for, because you know, you know, whether you know the specifics of love language, but you've learned to pay attention to, oh my gosh, she would really like this, but she wouldn't even think to ask for it. Or this would be a really nice act of service or a gesture that would be really meaningful, would make her feel completely seen, heard, and understood. Why not do that in business, right? This is, this is the call to order that I believe is going to be necessary in business. We, we know it, it's a home run in our personal lives. Why not understand that in business? It's what I refer to in lingo as the deeper need, right? Because people come to us, customers come to us 
asking for an acknowledged need. So in my case, people came to me and said, I would love a family photograph, right? That's their acknowledged need. Their deeper need, there were several deeper needs too that I will mention. The, the one deeper need was, sure, if they asked for a family photograph or a portrait of their children, but what they really want is five years from now to stop in their tracks in the hallway and have a fond memory or even a shed a tear over that moment in time that was captured in the photograph. Okay, so they're not, they don't ask for that. They just simply ask for the photograph. The even deeper need that I, this was a game changer for me in knowing how to attract my ideal customers, but then also how to keep them. The real deeper need, now granted, Jeff, I served a very affluent clientele. This is an interesting thing too, is that we don't want to generalize or stereotype people, but there are commonalities amongst groups of people. They're tribes. And my tribe were the affluent, the very affluent. One very common deeper need amongst that clientele is the need to be responsible. So you see, I grew up in a family, and I know this plays into my story as to how I became a photographer. I'm the youngest of three boys. Uh, there, there was literally one photograph of my entire childhood that I have found to date. Now, whether my parents got bored or was another third child, but I also financially tipped the scales. When I came along as the third child, my parents had to move. They, my mother had to go back to work. There was no time, no money. There were no photographs taken. If you're in an affluent family, that can never be the case. A parent, an affluent parent never wants to turn to their children and say, you know, well, sorry, you only went to community college when your older brother and sister went to Ivy League. When money isn't an issue, money's not an excuse. So affluent families have to operate at a much higher level of responsibility. They also have to look together to their, to their peers. They have to get holiday cards out on time. Like there's certain ways of function that their, their bar of responsibility and, and is off the charts. And I understood that as their deeper need. No one has ever contacted me as a photographer and said, I would love for you to help us be more responsible parents. They asked for photographs. But what I knew is they wanted my help in being the most responsible parents they could with all things related to photographing their children. So I made sure all the children were photographed at the same age. I made sure there were the equal number of photographs of all the kids on display in the house. These are the things that built a successful business for me because most businesses, most photographers would never take the time to tap into the deepest need, this unspoken need that your ideal customer doesn't know to ask for. But if you figure it out, you will endear them to you for a lifetime. I want to make this like super real for people because I think, so you're in business, I'm in business. We operate in a, in a space where uh, as marketers, as people who deal in branding, uh, you're a business owner, uh, I've, I'm a business owner. We operate in a space where we look out and we see people's mission statements and their visions, their values, their goals. We see their uh, lofty talk of how they're going to meet the needs of their customers and deliver unparalleled results and things like that. And the lingo that they're using is trying to resonate with their audience. And when you speak about deeper needs, I think there's a risk of people hearing that through the lens of it being um, potentially like pithy or, um, you know, um, less meaningful than, than I know that it actually is with you. Because when I read lingo, 
you didn't just leave it at that high level. You didn't just say, oh, we need to understand their deeper needs and just move on to the next page. You actually were very explicit in some of the things that you did to build your business. So I want to, for the people that are listening, to, to just make it very clear that you started as a photographer. You didn't start as a super successful photographer. And you made a number of mistakes along the way and began to learn a process that you you got to really figure out and understand what these people's deeper needs were that you were seeking to serve. I want to talk a little bit about that process, if you're cool with that. Sure. Um, because I found it really, really fascinating the extent you would go to, the, the, the uncomfortable places you pushed yourself sometimes, spaces where you maybe didn't feel like you belonged in order to gather this information. So if you could give me sort of the, uh, the 30 second from, from the shambles to when it started to click and then how it started to click. What was the process you went through to discover that lingo and understand those deeper needs? Because I think that practical exercise is what takes this from being a conceptual theoretical exercise of providing value to your audience to making it super real about here's what you go do tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So, wow. Um, so to your point, so I'm a, I'm a lower, you know, growing up as a lower middle-class kid at best. And I think part of you know, a turning point was realizing who I was meant to serve. And I think that's an important distinction, right? I had to look at my own characteristics, uh, the, the things that I value, the things that I was naturally good at, plus the skill set I had. And that led me to realize that I, re despite the fact that I, grew, I was growing up in a lower middle-class environment, a small country town, I became aware that I was meant to serve affluent people, not because they were the fast road to success or money, because actually nothing could be further from the truth. They're a hard market to break into, which turned out to be incredibly easy for me because my, my effort was genuine and sincere. I felt I was meant to serve that market because I needed to find the market that had the ability to think long-term. That was really the key. You can't... I was promoting the idea of photographs being handed down from generation to generation and, and preserving childhood memories. You can't, that, that means nothing to people who are struggling to get by month after month, which is the community I grew up in. So I asked myself the question, I value having photographs to hand down from generation to generation. Who can afford that? Who has that as a value? People that have that as a value are those that can afford to plan for the future, thereby affluent people. Once I figured that out, I had the audience I was meant to serve, but I was so far removed from that world. So I then needed to step into that world. And this is what I do with and encourage people to do every day. Step into the world of the people you're meant to serve. Understand their perspective. So I began frequenting high-end brands, high-end stores in New York City. Now, this is pre-internet back in the 80s when I was doing this. You could do a lot of this work online now, but to really understand, by the way. Yeah, to really understand the the lifestyle and i didn't want to understand the businesses as much as i wanted to embody the experience if i were you know how, if i were them if i were my ideal customer and i walked into a, a high end store or a restaurant what do i see what do i feel what is it why would i go there so i unpacked that and and i gave myself a goal you know i i came to a, a crucial point in my life where my business was failing wasn't able to pay myself I gave myself three, once I had the awareness of who I was meant to serve, I gave myself three months to completely understand what I now refer to as the lingo of my ideal customers, their lifestyle, their perspective. And then I relaunched, rebranded and relaunched my business. And I did all that within three months. 
Um, once and it continues to unfold. So I did a I did a great deal of the work by study, and my, the the true magic came from experience. It's when when I started working with them and paying attention is when I started hearing that deeper need of responsibility. Uh, I could pay attention to really fine details. Uh, and this is what, you know, one quick example, Jeff, is I said one of the things I paid attention to was my innate characteristics. I had always been, you know, quote unquote complimented or more likely teased by the fact that I'm a ridiculously organized person. And, you know, people that are not my tribe don't, they just make fun of that. They don't get it. Maybe they, maybe they're jealous of it, but they don't get it. But it's life-changing when you find the audience, as I did with affluent people, who love that detail. My attention to detail is off the charts. And that's exactly who an affluent person wants to choose to photograph them because I won't, there won't be a hair at a place. There won't be a, a blouse that's unflattering. There won't be you know, uh, any worry about portraits not getting to your family members on time for a gift. I'm way too buttoned down for that. So I found a group of people that loved me for who I am, who loved my innate characteristics. And those are the people that we're meant to serve. So is that the, um, there, cause there's kind of these two different, um, competing philosophies that you, you find an audience and then kind of adapt what you do to serve that audience, or you figure out who you are and then find the audience that naturally appreciates that. Is there somewhere in between, or do you advocate for one sort of, uh, methodology over another? Just a fantastic observation on your part, Jeff, because it is hard to explain. So I, I'm an advocate of starting with defining who you are so that you can first get with the people who you're meant to serve. And there's a, there's a very interesting connection, if you will, between my work, which is very business-oriented around lingo, and my TEDx talk, which is the theme of the TEDx talk is the idea that others can see more in us than we can see in ourselves, right? On the surface, these two things look disconnected in a lot of ways because a TEDx talk is not about business. The fact of the matter is when you figure out who you're meant to serve, you're putting yourself in the community of people who do in fact see more in you than you can see in yourselves, right? When you surround it, it's, it's sort of like the Jim Rohn quote, when you, you know, you are the culmination of the five people you surround yourself with. Well, imagine then what can become of you when you first understand who you are so that you put yourself amongst the tribe and community of people that you're meant to serve, who in reflection, see more in you than you can see in yourself, which makes you grow, which makes your business grow because you're making people happier, which sets the bar a little higher. That's an upward spiral. And that's how you reach success in both life and business. So you, you have always struck me as a ridiculously empathetic person. Like it seems to me like you, it, it does not cause you great pain to figure out how to understand how another person is feeling. I'm not sure if that's something that has always been with you. And I want to ask you about that in a second. But for people listening who maybe having a hard time getting into the head of the person that they seek to serve. Maybe they can't even get past the point of figuring out who they should be serving. But how would you go about installing the mindset in someone so that they can better look at their audience and ask themselves the right questions or get themselves into a framework where they see through the eyes of the customer and, and can deliver to them what they want or need? 
So I think one thing you need to do is to be very aware, and I do talk about this in the book, you have to be highly conscious of your views of other people. So wipe the slate clean of judgments and assumptions. I mean, we're so often not aware of how many assumptions we're carrying around. And a lot of businesses make assumptions. That's what I, honestly, Jeff, that's what I don't like about buyer personas and avatars. By nature, buyer personas and avatars are a bunch of assumptions and they're a projection of who you think you should serve. What I'm talking about is finding the people that are a reflection of you and who you should serve. It is, you know, yes, empathy, I think is, first of all, it's, it's learnable. It's in all of us. And you can, if it's not an innate feeling you have inside yourself, then you just need to have practices, right? Go, what are the brands that your, your ideal customers are currently interacting with? What makes the, what, why do you think the customer's choosing that brand? How, how, what's the experience they're having with it? And I would recommend, as people have pointed out to me, many people have asked me, well, if your photography business was struggling, why did you go to retail to study high-end retail? So because I didn't want to learn what other photographers did. I wanted to understand at a higher level the lifestyle of my ideal client. So I think empathy, empathy is very much a learned skill. And I also think empathy grows, but you have to get the ball rolling. So just start with just really removing any assumptions and judgments you might think you have. You and I both know what it's like. I, I, don't, I don't know how you grew up, but growing up lower middle class or even middle class, there's plenty of judgments and stereotypes about rich people, right? I mean, money's the root of all evil. They're rich, but they're not actually happy. The kids are raised by nannies. I heard them all growing up, but thankfully, none of it stuck with me. I was like, well, that, how do we know that's all true? And I'll tell you, none of it's true <laughs> because I've, lived, I've spent 30 years living with them. None of it's true. It is for maybe for the exception, but by and large, it's not true in isolation. There's probably examples you could point to where one absolutely more of those things. Yeah, but it's not. And as I always said, I have a naive view of the world because they're not the ones that are going to call a family photographer. They're not going to call me, right? I I didn't deal with them because I my branding was very clear on the the values of the people I wanted to work with. So I, it was very clear to my ideal customer whether I was the right choice for them. So I didn't see people that didn't put family first because you wouldn't call me. So, so I want to ask you about that from, I want to ask you about that specifically from two different angles. So I want to know how, so you built your business pre-social media, pre-internet to a certain extent. And you did all of these different exercises going on into uh, Bergdorf, uh, was it Bergdorf? Bergdorf Goodman. There you go. So you went in there and you, you bought like a wallet or something like that, right? So you did this all pre to just to get the experience of what it's like. And, I, and I'm sure you would still suggest whenever possible to go and have an experience so you can kind of latch onto those feelings of what it's like to be in your ideal customer's shoes. But technology has obviously changed the game pretty considerably from when you first started this idea. So if you were to look at, you know, Jeffrey Shaw being reborn and, uh, you know, 25 years old today in 2019, how would you go about, one, using the technology that's available to you now to gather the insights that you gathered along the way years ago starting, and then simultaneously, or, or I guess after that, how would you go about using those tools to better communicate outward who you are, how you're different in the way that you did maybe with your storefront back in the day? Mm-hmm. 
Well, for one, actually, in a lot of ways, I don't know. Well, I guess I'll reframe it. I don't know if it's easier. It was easier then or it would be easier now. Uh, I had to put on a lot more foot mileage because there, it was pre-internet. So I had to drive to brands and I had to go visit places, which I do think is really valuable because there's nothing like the, the real life experience. Um, however, you could accomplish a lot just simply by what you can find online, you know, doing some research. And when I work with my, some of my branding clients, I will set them on a journey to, um, you know, if I was work, recently working with somebody who was providing a very high-end service and I go find the most expensive, ridiculous things on the internet you can find, right? You know, whether bottles of champagne or whatever. And, and what that does is it not only provides you with some uh, idea of the lifestyle of the people who buy that brand, but it also raises your bar, right? Because, I mean, how many people know that there are, you know, bottles of champagne that cost tens of thousands of dollars, right? That's so out of my realm, I wouldn't know that. But when you see that there are, there are markets out there that that's natural for them, it expands, it lifts your ceiling of what you think is even possible for yourself. So I think a great deal of work you know, read the blogs that your ideal audience or clients are reading. Look at the online magazines. Where do they shop? What brands are they interacting with? Why are they interacting with those brands? Uh, J. Crew. It, it, it was interesting when I, I did a, a kind of a small focus group uh, of my photography clients years ago because I was considering doing some online advertising, Google ads, and things like that. But I wanted to understand the behavior of my very affluent clients online. And the whole thing was a surprise. So it pays to ask, right? So I asked. And what I found is that, A, they barely use their computers. Uh, if they use their computer, it's typically to help their kids with their homework and maybe to find some services or products that could be donated at their child's school's auction. Uh, but they don't shop. They don't travel. And I, it occurred to me, well, of course, they have staff that does all that. They have staff that books to travel, but they, they don't even shop. But if they shopped, now, amongst a small segment, I, I would say I asked maybe a dozen or so female clients of mine, and by and large, every one of, if if they shopped online, every one of them shopped online with the same retailer, and it was J. Crew, and that shocked me. It's like, why J. Crew? You know, and it's not the highest brand. Well, why was that the brand of choice amongst this clientele? And the, when I asked that question, the answer was also consistent. Their sizes are consistent. I actually contacted J. Crew about this, and they have their clothes manufactured in many different parts of the world, but they have a very high criteria for size consistency. So a busy, affluent mom needing to buy khakis for her son's private school and your basic shirts and socks, what she knows is that if she knows her child's size, there's a very strong likelihood with J. Crew that she's not going to, have to return it because it fits differently. They put a lot of effort into size consistency. So these are things you can find out by talking to people, listening, finding out. Like I said, where are they? Where are they currently? Uh, what what brands are they currently interacting with online? I think a great deal can be done using technique today's technology that I couldn't do several years ago. So one more, uh, I'm going to ask you one quick question to wrap up on that topic. But um, at, it, there's a lot of advice out there and a lot of marketing material and books and things telling people to do this kind of research, telling them to go get into their audience's head and telling them to empathize and understand where they and, and all of the things that we've talked about in less eloquent kind of phrases. But um, 
for, for the people that have heard it maybe before, maybe not said the way you did, but the people have heard it before and who have been sitting on the fence to not do it, can you just in a sentence summarize what it's meant to your career to make these sort of efforts into learning your ideal client's lingo? It's career changing. I mean, to me, like I said, I don't, I think the, the bar has been raised so high on what consumers, our customers, what consumers expect of businesses. Right, we see it. Every, if 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 masses of people disagree with the values or, or philosophy of a company, there's a mass exodus of that company. So the bar has been raised on integrity, transparency, authenticity. So consumers are paying very close attention to whether they like the person they are doing business with, whether it's a, an individual or a whole company. And because that bar has been raised, and you can't hide it. You know, it, it, the truth will will come out. Uh, the bar has really been raised for companies and businesses to understand their customers. What I refer to in lingo as just getting each other, right? A, a consumer needs to feel that this brand really gets me and understands me and understands my, you know, my needs, my nuances. I think that that's just, I think it's going to become an increased necessity for a business to get. So to me, I just... Not only has it been, it, it made my career. You know, I mean, as a photographer, I went from literally having a failing business to making the changes that I did to multiplying my income five times uh, in a year. And within a few years after that, by my late 20s, I had a seven-figure business, which provided me with a 50 to 60% profit return. And my, I'm in my late 20s. Why? Because I took those steps of empathy. So to me, there's no other way of being in business. And I'm trying to encourage people to re recognize that this is the way to be successful in the future. I love it. I love it. Well, you have a tremendous amount to offer. So I'm going to ask you a couple just very pointed kind of one word answer, quick questions uh, that I call shareables, um, so that people can benefit from all the things that that you have to offer all the knowledge you have that you've acquired, etc. And, and just things that you're working on. So um, What's one book that you think every business person, every person should read? It doesn't have to be a business person. What's one book everyone should read? Louder Than Words. Louder Than Words? Todd Henry. Okay. I dig it. Um, and you can't Ironically say- Ironically for a guy who wrote a book called Lingo, right? But it's a yeah. great book. <laughs> um, aside from obviously Creative Warriors, which is one of the best podcasts on the internet, um, what's your favorite podcast? Easy. Uh, the Unmistakable Creative, Srini Rao. God, I don't even know that one. I'm going to add that to really? my list. Honestly, these shareables, these are for me. <laughs> the unmistakable <laughs> Creative. I was on his show last year, and I have to say, I was a complete fangirl. Like, it was like, one of the highlights of my life. I actually have, he does really amazing artwork, and I created a poster of the artwork of my episode that hangs in my office. That's awesome. Very That's proud cool. moment. God, I hope that one day, just one day, someone will print out the uh, cover art from an episode of Shareable. They will hang it on their wall. Um, what's a TV show or movie or documentary or some sort of a show that somebody should go and watch? Oh, man. that's a t I get made fun of all the time because I, I watch so little TV. Like I am clueless. I don't even have Netflix. I'm clueless <laughs> of what's going on in the world. <laughs> so, but movie that everyone should see. Or document. It could be, it could be a YouTube <sighs> channel. It could be like you know, uh, just a video, anything that is watchable, do you think people should watch because it'll make their lives better and enrich it? Uh, I'm going to go with this. is my, my favorite movie is American Beauty. 
And I really like that movie too, it, although it it hasn't aged well now. It, it's just twisted, but I think that's what I love about it. And it, again, it's a, it's a movie of observation. And if you have if you've seen no other connections and all the things we've talked about, it's I'm an observer, right? I mean, that's that's who I am as a photographer. I, everything I do is just by I actually refer to it as witnessing because I think it's a little more there's a higher level of responsibility and witnessing than observing. Mm-hmm. But I like to look, observe. And just be fascinated by it. And I find the movie fascinating because it's so twisted. What looks what looks wrong actually isn't as wrong as what looks right. Got it. Interesting. Okay. Um, what's, uh, what's an application, mobile or desktop, that everyone should go download? Um, here, by the way. Everyone says, a, what's that? Everyone says Evernote. Yeah, of course. And I, I wasn't going to because I do use it. But, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of an app called To Do. It's the number two, D-O. Uh, it's my to-do list. And what I like about it and the reason I, I support that kind of technology is that when it comes to to-do lists, I don't think they should be a, a measure of beating ourselves up. I think they should be a positive experience. And to-do lists often just are not a bunch of, bunch of guilt about what you didn't get done. What I like about to-do is how easy it is to say, well, I didn't get that done on Tuesday. I just slide it to Thursday and feel okay about that. Okay. Okay, cool. Uh, only a few more. Uh, what's the big lesson you wish you learned earlier in your career? <sighs> to, uh, to know that other people can often see more in us than I can see in ourselves. You know, I've, I think that has always held me back. It's always held me back that I've, I've only seen what was possible for me by my own, uh, through my own limited expectation lens. And I wish I had learned a lot earlier, as I said right in the beginning, that I, I'm learning to do, uh, what I'm learning to do for this year is other people seem to think this is going to be a banner year for me. So, okay, I'll believe them. That's awesome. I'm going to try and take that one on myself too this year. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. Uh, what's the most important skill of the future? Most important skill of the future, I have to go with empathy. It's a good answer. I can't argue. Yeah, I, mean, I can't not with all that I've said, but I have to say empathy. All right. And last one, what is one thing that everybody listening to this episode should go and do today? Take a walk. <laughs> you know, sorry, that sounds so basic. But I mean, I, as, I, as we're recording this, I'm looking out over the ocean. I live in Miami. And that's actually what was on my mind. It's like, there's so much I want to unpack and sort in my mind as we all do, because we live such busy lives. Just go take a walk. I'm a huge proponent of the idea to slow down to speed up. And just, you know, we can't just keep running from thing to thing to thing. That Man, you'll get to where you want to go if you just learn to integrate into your life those those pauses. I'm a huge proponent of the pause. Huge. Take a walk. I'm uh, I'm trying to implement a lot of that myself. I mean, I walk to work every day, but I've been um, uh, for probably about a month now. I've been trying to uh, integrate meditation into my kind of daily practice because I find that if the days that I do that, I have a much more clear head and ability to focus. Uh, whereas on the days that I don't, I just kind of buzz around and and oftentimes get less done. So, so can I'm, I add something to my answer? Yeah, sure. Because <laughs> now that you've said that, I'm like, oh yeah, I overlooked the obvious. Truly, the best practice that everybody can start today, tomorrow, and it's in it's in my book, Lingo Two, is what I call a "What's Going Right" journal. This has been life changing for me. It's, it, real quick context: I've always struggled with gratitude journals 
Uh, I love them. I think it's great. I think they're sweet and a nice idea, but it just doesn't work for me because I'm grateful for too many things. I needed something that brought more tangible results. So I created a what's going right journal where every morning I journal about what's going right in my life. And man, as we know it by human nature, it is, it's so much easier to focus on what's going wrong. The one criticism, we ignore the 10 compliments, we ignore the things that are going right. And having a daily practice of acknowledging what's going right, not only does it bring awareness to it. It, it has a, the tangible result of bringing your attention to seeing more things going in your right, uh, in your life that are going right in your life, which to me just, it creates a positive flow. So that I just couldn't overlook the opportunity because I said, it's so obvious to me because I do it every morning. Well, I'm but, glad that you added it. Uh, the sad thing for me is I really wish that I had heard that last year. Uh, I do a post at the beginning of every year called my three words. It was inspired by Chris Brogan where essentially instead of making resolutions, you write down three words that are like your themes for the year, essentially. Mm -hmm. And last year, one of my themes was appreciate, which was about finally, maybe, hopefully trying to appreciate the things that I've accomplished and the, you know, where I am in my life and kind of the what's going right. And God, that was really hard last year. And it's, you know, it's still not easy, but it's something that I'm definitely working on. I like that idea of the what's going right journal. And even more importantly, is that you didn't mention that you also have a column for everything that's going wrong, because you'll fill up that book real fast. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it's actually a practice of retraining the brain, because by nature, we see what's wrong, because we're, we're wired for survival. So we see the threats more than we see the sun shining, right? So that's why the what's going right journal, it's not only, you know, not only a good practice, it, you actually are retraining the brain to see more of what's going right. Yeah, no, I totally dig it. Jeff, you were... I expected you to be a great guest on the show. I really did because you know you're a fantastic host of your own podcast, and and I've heard you on other people's podcasts, and you're and we talk, and you're just awesome. So I expect you to be good, but I think you were even better than I anticipated you would be. So thank you well, thank for coming you. on. Um, tell people where they can go and be social with you and learn more about what you're working on, and uh, just how if they want to you know get in touch with you or or do work with you, where they can you know keep up with all things Jeffrey Shaw. Sure. Well, uh, the website is jeffreyshaw.com. Uh, Jeffrey is J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. I don't know why people spell it wrong, but it's like jeffreyshaw.com. And, um, but in addition, you'll find me on Instagram at jeffreyshaw, Twitter, jeffreyshaw1. So not hard to find me on social. I am pretty active there and would love to connect with whoever wants to reach out. Cool. And we will put all of that in the show notes along with uh, plenty of info from this episode, which was rich and full of so much awesome sauce. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and uh, setting aside the time to uh, chat with me on shareable. And uh, I guess if I had to call this episode anything, I guess I would say it's shareable. Wait, the show's not over yet. I have some important announcements. If you made it this far, you're clearly a dedicated fan or you're in the middle of vacuuming and just haven't hit stop on your podcasting app. Whatever the case, we want to thank you. We're not just music to your ears, we're music to your inbox. If you subscribe to our email list at sharablepodcast.com slash subscribe, not only will you get access to our private Facebook group, you'll also get all of our blog posts, newsletters, special announcements, and more. You won't find any of that in your podcast feed. You can follow the show at shareable underscore pod on Twitter and just shareable podcast on everything else. You can find Jeff online at jeffgibber.com and you can connect with me on Twitter at Caroline Stone because I don't have a website yet. So go ahead, call us, leave a message, subscribe to our list, leave a rating, review us on iTunes, tell a friend, tell your mom. If she's like my mom, she'll love it. And now for the thank you portion to all the folks that make this podcast possible. Shout out to DJ Quads for the use of our theme song, Always, and Ahamitsu for the use of our outro song, Adventures. And a big thank you to Ray Bueno for all of that sexy production value. 